Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone. Today, Amy Wright catches up with veteran bluesman and endearing artist Charlie Musselwhite. A Mississippi native born in the 40s, he came of age in Memphis, Tennessee. Right as rock and roll was clawing its way into existence and latching onto the hearts of young teenagers around the country. But it was the blues of Chicago that called Charlie's name. On today's show, Charlie and Amy look at the achievements and legacy that he's built over the last 60 years, including his latest album for Alligator Records, Mississippi Sun, released in June of this year. The Grammy Award-winning music legend has released nearly 40 albums, and is renowned worldwide as a master harmonica player, a seasoned, truth-telling vocalist, and an original songwriter rooted deep within the blues tradition. Let's hear what he has to say. From Diddy TV, this is Insights. Well, I'm up here in Memphis, so I'm not too far away from you guys. Diddy TV broadcasts right out of downtown Memphis on Main Street near the Civil Rights Museum. Uh-huh, it looks like South Main. It does, doesn't it? I bet you know a little bit about that. Yeah, I grew up in Memphis. I was going to talk to you about that. We're going to get to your album, which is Mississippi Sun, and I know that it came out in June, and a great album, and I want to talk about that. But I also wanted to go back and just talk a little bit about you and how you got started in music and all that kind of fun stuff. And um, and so what you just said is kind of interesting, because you were born in Mississippi, but you moved to Memphis pretty early, right? Yeah, 1947. 1947. And when you, so you really grew up in Memphis for the most part. Yeah, right behind Leahy's Trailer Court on Summer Avenue. I lived on Manhattan Avenue, 3053 Manhattan Avenue. I can't believe you still remember the address. (laughs) I still remember the phone number. It was 85115. Then it became... GL85115, Glendale. That's great. That's actually where my uh, grandmother used to live, over, right over there off uh, Summer, kind of near Summer and White Station, sort of right in that area. So, Oh, White uh, Station, that's way, that's way out. Oh, you were, way, you were more downtown then. Uh, near Tillman, Tillman and Summer, right behind Leahy's Trailer Court. <laughs> That's where James Jones wrote From Here to Eternity in that trailer court. When was that? In the 40s. Now, did you, uh, did you, when did you start playing harmonica or guitar? Were you small or was that a little bit later? There were always harmonicas around when I was a kid. Uh, seemed like everybody had a harmonica back then. And, uh, and I just would toot around on it like a little kid. You know, I wasn't really playing much until I was about 13. I, I was already really interested in blues. And I was going around Memphis looking for old blue 78s. I'd go to junk stores and used furniture stores. Had a lot of 78s back then. And uh, I was listening. I loved all these old blues. And I remember listening to the first Sunny Boy. And I really love that harmonica style. And one day I remember thinking, well, you have a harmonica. It sounds so good to listen to it. I bet it feels even better to play one. So I just started teaching myself at first. And actually, the harmonica is the only instrument you can't see what's going on. So you have to pretty much teach yourself. You can listen to other people for ideas. But uh, you can't watch somebody's fingers like you can on the guitar or drums or anything else. It's, it's all kind of more by feel almost. You have to be able to feel it and hear it, right? Yeah, you need a, a mental picture. You can't just look at your hands. Like every instrument, the hands are going somehow. <laughs> now, did anyone in your family play music? Were your parents musicians, uncles, aunts? Almost every muscle I've ever met played music, not professionally, but they 
played piano around the house or in church. My dad played guitar and harmonica and mandolin. My mom played piano. My grandmother played piano. I had an uncle that had a one-man band. Uh, I remember asking him one time, I said, who did you play for? I mean, where, where did you go to play? And he said, oh, I just followed the harvest. So when people would get off of work from the fields, he'd be right there playing away for tips. So what was it like to be in Memphis at that time? Because it was a real melting pot of blues and, you know, Western swing and rockabilly and country and everything else in between. And so what was it like to just be here and soak all that in? Well, uh, it was a lot of music all over the place, it seemed like. Uh, you mentioned rockabilly and Johnny and Dorsey Burnett lived right across the street from me. And next door to me lived a guy named Jimmy Griffin, who later in the 70s had a band called Bread. Uh, and uh, a couple of blocks away was another guy named Dusty Rhodes. And he had a, he might have had a TV show, I'm not sure. Yeah, he was on TV and uh, he'd wear a big white cowboy hat. He played kind of a cross between country and rockabilly. And I remember... Uh, Sometimes you'd hear a band playing off in the distance, and if you just followed the music, you'd get to a maybe a car lot where they were having a sale or something. They'd hire a band to, for a sale or an opening or something like that. And a lot of garage bands and a great radio. Memphis has always had the best gospel radio I've ever heard. And uh, I mean, not only did they play records, but they'd play recordings from services where they really were rocking. <laughs> and uh, I, I love the gospel music. I'd, I'd go to uh, tent meetings where I could just drive up next to the tent because they'd roll up the sides. It'd be too hot to have it all closed. And I could just sit in my car and, and uh, listen to the singing. And man, I love that. I, I wasn't so much into being saved or nothing because I was sitting in my car drinking beer. <laughs> I've always thought there was this interesting connection between evangelical tent gospel and rock and roll, just because there was so much passion and emotion that went into it. And you pass by these, these revivals and people are going crazy with the music. Well, a lot of great singers come out of the church. Even Muddy Waters said, if you want to learn how to sing, go to church. And it's, it's true, you know, when I was growing up, of course, I grew up in the South, I grew up in Memphis, and um, I would go to church and I was in the choir and all that kind of stuff when I was growing up in school. But that is where you learn, because you learn harmonies, too. It's not just the melody. You learn how to sing a part. Yeah, and you're really singing with passion, too. I mean, you're putting your heart into it. You're not singing a lullaby, you know. It's, <laughs> no. It's rocking. Right, exactly. You're putting it out there. And... Um, so when did you actually start playing the blues, though? Was that still in when you were young? or? Well, I was about 13. I didn't have any idea that I was going to be a professional musician. I just loved the music, and I just had to play it. I had to. And I was fascinated with the street singers that were in downtown Memphis. You know, back then, there weren't shopping centers. When you wanted when you went shopping, you took the bus and went downtown. And uh, before I'd get on the bus to come home, I'd look around, and almost always I could find a guy playing a guitar for tips somewhere downtown or on Beale Street. And I was too shy to talk to them, so I don't know who they were, but I really loved, I was just fascinated with them. You know, they were singing blues, and actually you didn't hear that kind of acoustic country blues on the radio. It was special to hear it right there on the street. I remember there was a guy that played mandolin at the corner of Poplar and Maine. And uh, he lived not far from me because he would get on and off the bus like the next stop for me. I'd get on, then he'd get on the next stop. And um, later on, as I got older, I got to know some of those guys. And I kept learning. I, if I had known that I was going to have a career in music, I would have paid a lot more attention. But I was just having fun at the time, 
hanging out with these guys and you know just you were just having fun and they were real encouraging to me and uh, and flattered that I would come to them and that I loved their music and wanted to know them and so it was a, a good situation. Now when you were still in Memphis because uh, we're going to get to the next chapter as you moved around but were you playing with anyone like B.B. King or did you go see them or did you get down to Bill Street or any of that while you were still here? Uh, I, I hung out on Bill Street a lot but I didn't go to you know, I was too young to get in any clubs. I left Memphis when I was 18. And, uh, you know, there were places where you could hear uh, where they had like young kind of rock and roll bands. There was a guy I remember named Bobby Coffey. He was kind of popular. And a guy named Ronnie Black. And they had bands that played like little school dances or something or there was like community centers or something that have have a, uh, a local rock and roll band. I don't know if they recorded or anything, but they were just guys who got together and played. Uh, James Fraley was another guy. That had a, I remember him singing uh, uh, Matchbox Blues. If I something about if I, something about a, a Matchbox at home, my clothes or something. I forget. That was a long time ago. So you're 18, and you think, uh, why did you move to why did you move to Chicago? Because that was kind of your next stop. But why did you move there? Was there a job there? Was some other reason? Just like thousands of other people were getting out of the South, you know, it was economically depressed. Uh, I'd been doing construction work for a dollar an hour. I didn't they didn't agree with me too well, and uh, also I'd done a little. Bit of moonshine running it. <laughs> it paid okay, but that wasn't something you did all the time, just once in a while. But I'd heard about all this, these big factories up north in Chicago and how they had benefits and paid really good money. And friends of mine would go away and they'd come back to visit driving a brand new car, you know, big red Oldsmobile or something. And finally, I thought, you know, I just got to go up there and get me one of those factory jobs. So uh, I didn't know anything about Chicago except that. It was a big city with a lot of jobs. I didn't know, I didn't connect it with the blues scene at all. Uh, and on the lab labels of the records I listened to, a lot of them said made in Chicago or something. I just thought that's where they made records. I didn't know all of these guys I were listening to lived there. I had been told that uh, if you were in the, any kind of an entertainer, you either lived in New York City or Hollywood. <laughs> so to, to me, probably Helen Wolf lived in Hollywood or something. I didn't know. So <laughs> I didn't go to Chicago looking for the blues. I just went there looking for a job in the factory. So when you did you take the train or did you drive to Chicago? Me and a friend of mine, a guy named Garen Turner, he had a car. We drove up there. We took Highway 51. We called it Hillbilly Highway. We <laughs> went straight up to Chicago. And uh, we found a little place that we rented for a week. And every day we went out looking for jobs. We split up. He'd go this way, I'd go that way. And uh, finally, uh, the week was up and we were going to, Head on back to Memphis. Neither one of us had found a job. All those jobs we heard about didn't seem to. It was a bad time of year, I guess. <laughs> Anyhow, I, I did find a job. It was on a Sunday. We were going to leave on Monday and drive back to Memphis. And I thought, well, I'm going to just take a walk around, last walk around, look around Chicago here. And I walked by a little store that had a, I could see a light on it, a guy in the back, and it said, help wanted in the front. And I went in. He said, be here Monday morning. So I had a job and uh, I went back and told Garen and he went on back to Memphis Monday and I went to work. So was this when you were working in the record store? Or was that later? In the where? Uh, did you work at a record store at some point in Chicago? It was later. While I was going around town looking for jobs, I came across this little record store at State and Grand, 7 West Grand. 
uh, was the address. It was called the Jazz Record Mart. And the, the window was full of blues and jazz records. Other than the home of the blues record shop, which is on which it had been on Beale Street, I'd never seen so many blues records in the window of a store. That was pretty exciting to me, but they weren't open at that time. Uh, later on, I went back one night when they were open, and I met the people that worked there, and they told me about all the a lot of the blues that was, was going on in town, and uh, so that was really interesting to me. But my first job was a driver. For an exterminator, I drove him <laughs> all over Chicago, and I, which was great because I got to know the city real well, real fast, and uh, I passed a lot of clubs that said, I still remember seeing Elmore James Tuesday night, and going down Forty Third Street, Pepper's Lounge said Muddy Waters painted on the window. I thought, wow, this is crazy. So. Uh, Right away, I found the whole blue scene and started hanging out in all the clubs. I was a teenager, but I was big for my age, and I had a suit, and I'd put that on. They'd let me in just about any place I went. They didn't, nobody cared. I just passed for 21, I guess. Nobody seemed to care one way or the other. And, so did uh, you just hang out long enough for them to say, hey, you want to come up on stage and play a little bit, or how did I that happen? I didn't tell anybody I played. I wasn't going around you know, holding up my harmonica, asking to sit in. I was happy just to hang out and socialize and listen to the music. And I got to know Muddy and Little Walter and Big Walter and Howlin' Wolf. They just thought I was a fan. You know, I'd request tunes and I, I re re would request obscure tunes. They'd say, how do you know that song? I said, I got the record. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I didn't think, you know, this was adult music. There wasn't anybody my age playing this music. And uh, it's interesting in the factories where I worked, black guys my age would be talking on on the break. And I'd say, I, well, over the weekend, I went to hear Muddy Waters. I'd say, Muddy Waters? Why did you go to see hear Muddy Waters? <laughs> I said, I like that music. I said, man, that's the old folks music. You got to get up with the times. I said, well, I like it. I like Howlin' Wolf. Howlin' Wolf, man, you are <laughs> nuts. That's my parents' music. They wanted nothing to do with blues. It was, they thought I was nuts. But so when I was at these clubs, there was nobody my age. It was adults. And, you know, there was a lot of sitting in that went on, but I didn't think I had any business sitting in. I didn't know if I was that good or I didn't even think about it that way. I was just lucky to have a job in a factory. <laughs> uh, but uh, somebody told Muddy that I played harmonica and they should hear me play. And when Muddy found out I played, he insisted that I sit in. And a lot of musicians hung out there at Pepper's Lounge and they heard me playing with Muddy Waters and they started offering me gigs. And that changed everything. He said, wow, you're going to pay me to play harmonica? All right. That was my chicken out of the factory. Tell me about Pepper's Lounge. Was that a place that a lot of these guys played? Yeah, it was on 43rd Street. Muddy lived right around the corner. Uh, it was his home club. If he went on the road touring, he was playing it. You see him there right at Pepper's Lounge. They were open to four in the morning. And uh, Saturday night, they were open till five in the morning. So uh, that's a lot of time to play <laughs> from like nine to four or five in the morning. So Muddy encouraged people to sit in. And I met a lot of musicians there, like Robert Nighthawk and Earl, uh, Earl Hooker, and just lots and lots of musicians. Everybody knew Pepper's Lounge. It was a famous place in the blues scene. And it was one of the bigger clubs. Most of those clubs were real small and didn't pay that much because you couldn't get that many people in there. But a few clubs were bigger like Pepper's and also Silvio's. That's where Howlin' Wolf, that was his home club. If he wasn't on the road, 
you'd find Wolf at Silvio's. And uh, I've spent a lot of time there too. Silvio's was out on Lake Street. So when the weather was really bad, like it gets in the winter in Chicago, that was my destination because I could take the L out Lake Street and just walk down the stairs and straight in the front door of Silvio's. So it was easy <laughs> to get to. Well, you're a good Southern boy. You know, that snow is probably not going to be the be your favorite thing. <laughs> well, all, all the people in the, uh, many of the people in Chicago, especially on the South side, were from the South. I mean, it was like North Mississippi or something, you know, it's, everybody was either from the South or one generation removed. So it was, you know, I could find home cooking like I liked and music like I liked. I fit right in. <laughs> did, did you find the scene pretty encouraging? Was it collaborative at that point in time where the musicians kind of working together and did they bring you in and kind of help you out a well, little bit? It was like Memphis. These guys were uh, flattered that I knew who they were, that I had their records, that I knew the names of their tunes and and would go to see them. I mean, these were rough places. A lot of people wouldn't go in these clubs, you know, uh, black or white. And I hardly ever saw any white people there. So sometimes people would say, man, we first saw you hanging out here. We didn't know if you were a cop or if you were just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> But I didn't care, you know, I, I felt like I could take care of myself wherever I went. I just had a good time. So did you, at that age, did you really notice the difference between, say, uh, the Memphis Blues or the Mississippi Blues versus what was going on in Chicago at the time? Well, the guys I knew in Memphis were playing acoustic guitars. and It was more down-home country blues where in, in Chicago, they were using amplifiers and electric guitars and to be a whole band with drums and bass and piano and, and all electrified. And uh, so it was a pretty good, big difference, but it was the same music, it was just electric. So when did you start playing guitar? Was that, or were you already playing guitar at this point or did that happen later? I, I was playing in Memphis, I started, teaching myself guitar and harmonica about the same time. My dad gave me his guitar when I was 13, an old supertone. And, um, but, you know, you could always have a harmonica in your pocket. Couldn't always have a guitar in your pocket. So I didn't like to walk around carrying a guitar. So, and there were tons of guitar players in Chicago and not that many harmonica players. So that's where I got a lot of work playing harmonica. But I kept playing for myself guitar because I, I loved it too. I still do. So when did you form your own band? Well, uh, at first I was being hired to play in other bands. And occasionally, if I got a gig, the same band would just have my name, you know, just whoever got the gig, it was their band, you know. Same band. <laughs> same people and uh, after I made that first album in Chicago things started to really take off because suddenly I was being played on the radio and I had a record out and I was being offered more gigs and more money and uh, I just followed that path uh, they were playing me a lot on the radio and California because they at that time they had what they call underground radio and those guys those disc jockeys could play anything they wanted to they weren't given a list of, and told what to play they'd bring records from home in fact I used to go down to the, some of these stations with records just records I liked and we'd sit around and play records if it was just like I was at a party at somebody's house or something so the underground radio was a big well, a lot of people learned a lot about music they never ordinarily would have ever heard if it hadn't been for underground radio. And that's how they found out about me. <laughs> so I started getting calls from California to come out and play. 
And uh, finally, uh, I kept putting them off, but finally a guy offered me a whole month of work in California. I thought, well, I'll just go out there and do that month and come on back to Chicago. But when I got to California, I discovered pretty quickly that all up and down the West Coast, there was a lot of work and they had these big ballrooms that paid a lot of money, way, way better than the little tiny blues clubs in Chicago. So it didn't take me long to make up my mind that I wasn't going back to Chicago, maybe about 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so where in California did you move to? I wound up in uh, Berkeley. I found a, I was looking for an apartment and I found one in Berkeley. That's where I first lived. And uh, I was flying out of San Francisco to other parts of the country to play and up and down the West Coast, up to Seattle, Washington, and up in Portland, Oregon, and down to LA and San Diego. It was a lot of work. Was that in the 1960s there, you know, right in that sort of time period? 1967. That's when I, my album came out that year. And I think it was August or September. I went to San Francisco to play at the Fillmore with the Cream and uh, Paul Butterfield. That was my first gig. And it was like a week long or four days or something like that. How did, how did the, the blues kind of fit into that San Francisco counterculture, psychedelic rock stuff that was going on. I mean, where did you sort of fit into the scene? Well, it was easy because the hippies, <laughs> they were open to everything, you know. Uh, and a guy like uh, Bill Graham, he would mix up the bill. He would... It wouldn't be like just all a country show or all a psychedelic show or all a blues show. Or it'd have like maybe Count Basie and uh, Ravi Shankar and BB King or something all mixed up, which was great because it's all great music. And uh, everybody went to, they trusted Bill's taste and whether they knew who was playing or not, they went to the, the Fillmore to hear wherever whoever was playing, and um, it was just wild times. I mean, everybody. It was room for everybody. It was room for every kind of music, every kind of art, and um, it was really a fascinating time. I read that you actually convinced John Lee Hooker to move out there as well. Is that true? <laughs> well, I I don't know if I convinced him, but I certainly was part of the convincing. I remember calling him up. He lived in Detroit, but we were good friends. And I called him up and I said, John, you better get out here to the West Coast. I think you're really going to like it. <laughs> and one long after that, he he was in uh, Oakland, California, where he first moved to. What was the best part about that move to California for you and sort of your career from a music standpoint? Well, it just uh, got me established. Uh, people started booking me more all over the place. And uh, I got put out more records and uh, the radio was playing me. It just all just started happening. Uh, the door would open, I'd go through it. You know, I didn't have a manager. I didn't have a, a booking agency or nothing. Uh, I was like being thrown in the deep end of the pool, not knowing how to swim. I just splashed around and figured it out as I went. Made a lot of mistakes and didn't repeat too many of them too many times. And I just kept going. Well, you know, one of the things that struck me is that you've, you know, you've collaborated with so many different artists along the way. Musicians like Bonnie Raitt and Tom Waits and Cindy Lauper and a lot of others. So tell me a little bit about um, why you like to collaborate and, um, and you know, just what that experience is like for you um, as a musician. Well, it's fun because you're in a situation where you have to think differently than you ordinarily would, you know? Like 
playing with Cindy Lauper. She's known as a rocker, but her first love was blues, and she still loves blues. She did a blues album right there in Memphis, and uh, uh, she used all local musicians and all Memphis musicians. And I was living in California at the time, but they called me to come play with her for that session. And then we spent the next two years on the road. So we would do blues and we would do her hits too, like Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Now it's got a harmonica solo in it. <laughs> so, you know, I would just, whatever situation I'm in, whether it's, if it, even if it's not blues, I'm still playing blues, but I, I find a way to make it fit what you're doing. I have to change my thinking to fit your music. And uh, I remember being with Cindy in the middle of Times Square, uh, it was one of those morning TV shows in New York City, and just her and I and a piano player doing Girls Just Want to Have Fun, right in the middle of Times Square, with all the neon and everything going. It was, I was thinking, how did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> it's a long way from Mississippi, I can tell you that. Uh, but she's great. I, I think the world of her. Uh, Tough as nails. You don't want to cross that woman. That's I would think she would be pretty about. tough. I think she can hold her own. I don't know. I, yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't, she'll chop and dice you in seconds. <laughs> <laughs> but she's not uh, a bully. She just won't take any baloney off of anybody. And we got along great. And we're still real good friends. I love that about her. She's always been someone... I love her music, and I, I've never met her personally, but she's just one of those people I could picture not taking any flack. She's also very compassionate, and she does a lot of stuff to help people that most people would never know about. She has a real big heart. She's a good person. So you were also in a movie, the Blues Brothers movie, um, Blues Brothers 2000, I guess, in 98, um, and what was it like uh, to be in the movie? I mean, what was the whole experience like? That had to be fun, I would think. Well, my part, uh, the scene I was in just happened one day. I don't know how long they took to make the whole movie, but uh, I was in a, a band they put together for that show. Uh, gosh, there's so many people in the band, Dr. John and B.B. Uh, King and Bo Diddley and I mean there's a long list <laughs> of they had filmed uh, the backstage joking and carrying on and it was we, we all had a lot of fun <laughs> uh, and we just played some tunes I wasn't supposed to sing but the person that was supposed to sing the line that I sang kept blowing it and Paul Schaefer was the musical director. He was the, you know, the David Letterman guy. He said, okay, Charlie, you take it. I said, what take what? Take what? what? <laughs> so I had to learn that line right away. And when they rolled the film, I, I was able to pull it off. And uh, it's funny, when we went to the, the premiere to see the movie, all of a sudden, I'm singing and my head's taking up the whole screen and my wife turns to, turns to me and I'm asleep. <laughs> I missed the whole thing. Oh. So you've won many blues awards, countless blues awards, and you've been nominated for, for multiple Grammys. And in 2014, you actually teamed up with Ben Harper and uh, won a Grammy for Out, Get Up, I think is what it's called. Um, what was it like to work with Ben Harper? Oh, it was great. We were on the road for about four years and we did two albums and one, like you say, won a Grammy and, uh, well, we played festivals in Europe where there'd be like, gosh, I don't know, tens of thousands of people. I don't know, but 50,000 or something. I mean, huge you could put a whole city in this place, uh, these arenas. And uh, most of those people had no clue who I was. But by, by the end of the show, they did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
mostly I played harmonica backing up Ben, but he featured me. I did, I don't know, three or four tunes of my own. Uh, sometimes we played ancient Roman uh, theaters that were built thousands of years ago. But the acoustics were so great, they hardly needed a PA in there. And they're still standing. It's amazing. And they're huge. Uh, all kind of wonderful events like that all over. He's huge in France and uh, especially all over the world, really. And uh, so I got a lot of exposure. A lot of people saw me that never would have paid any attention to me or knew who I was. But uh, that was a lot of fun. And he's a great guy. And he really is very talented. Uh, he can he can really write a song. And he loves blues. And we're yeah. still in time. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and before we get to your new album, because I want to talk about that, um, you were also inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame in 2010. Um, what were you thinking when you got that call that you were going to be inducted? Well, I thought that was real nice, and especially to have it happen in Memphis makes it real meaningful to me. Uh, uh, it's just it's really nice to be uh, thought of that way and respected that way, and uh, I'm humbled. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would receive that kind of attention. Um, it's real nice. I'm, well, it's, I'm proud of it. Well, and well-deserved. Well-deserved. Um, well, let's talk about the new album, Mississippi Sun. And it, it came out a couple months ago. Um, is this album in any way autobiographical? Everything I do is autobiographical, in one sense or another. Uh, I can't really sing a song or perform a song that didn't, I don't believe in or it doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, I've got to, I have to believe in it in some way. So a lot of the songs I've written or from personal experience or, or if it's somebody else's song I'm covering, it's a song I'm covering because I understand it and it means something to me, which is what blues should do. I mean, that's, it's about life and it's, it's about telling the truth and, uh, I say blues is your buddy in good times, and it's your comforter in rough times. It's always there for you. It's all-purpose music. One size fits all. Now, you play the harmonica and guitar on every song on the album, right? Well, how that started was I'm here in Clarksville, Mississippi, and the pandemic has hit, and everything is shut down. I'm not touring anymore. I've had I've never had so much time off in decades since I was a kid. It was kind of nice. I kind of liked having all that time. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't miss my suitcase at all. But uh, three blocks away, a friend of mine has this recording studio. And it's a pretty good studio. Morgan Freeman does a lot of his overdubs and voiceovers there. So you know they got good equipment. And uh, I was hanging out there. Gary Vincent owns that studio, and he's also a songwriter, guitar player, and got lots of guitars around. I'm fooling around, just playing guitars. And and uh, one day he said, you know, I, I want to tape some of these tunes you're playing. I said, yeah, sure. So uh, it was just that casual. You know, it was just hanging out. And at one point, uh, my wife, Henrietta, said, you know, this could be an album. So we uh, kept on recording. You know, I'd do a, one tune or two or three tunes, whatever happened to be by there. And then we brought in a drummer and a bass player on some other tunes. And uh, uh, over, I overdubbed all my harmonica parts. And uh, we sent a copy to Alligator Records to see if they were interested. And wow, they just flipped for it. They had to have it. And uh, I thought it was pretty good, but I, I didn't know it was, it was going to create that much of a, I mean, people, I got the best reviews just about I ever got off of this record. 
it's really uh, almost embarrassing. <laughs> well, now you're going to have to go back out on the road after you've had this time off because <laughs> you've done so well with your album. Oh, I've been already. I've been to, I went to Switzerland and played for a week over there out to the West Coast and through the Midwest. I've been working. I get, I'm leaving shortly for the West Coast. Thursday I'm going. I'll be out there a month. It's a good time to be on the West Coast. It's a little hot here in the South still. Oh, are you kidding? In, uh, <laughs> where I used to live in Gazerville, California, is supposed to be, I think, 111 today. Oh, that's right. They're having a heat wave. Yeah. But it'll be cooled off by the time I get there. I keep here's telling to, people. Here's to hope. <laughs> they, they think it's hot here. They don't know. Come on down to the South. It's real copacetic. Right. Well, and so there's 14 songs on the new album, and um, you wrote most of them, but there are also some other songs in there that you chose, cover songs. How did you choose the songs that you didn't write? It's just favorite songs of mine that I enjoy playing. I, I like the lyrics. I like the melody. I like what it has to say, the message it might have. Um, and there's songs that I already knew that I was just playing on guitar. I'd play right here in my office just for my own entertainment, my own amusement. So uh, I knew them well. I didn't like have to hunt for songs, you know. Here's songs I already knew and I was already doing for myself. Well, let's talk about a couple of the songs just because I like to hear from you what these songs are about, sort of, uh, in your own words. Um, Blues Gave Me a Ride. Tell me about that one. Uh, that's what I call an eight-bar blues. I don't really remember how I got, what inspired me to write that, but uh, everybody likes that line about uh, blues tells the truth in a world full of lies. And uh, I kind of like that line myself. I don't know how I came up with that. The words just kind of come to me. And uh, I write a song, I have an image in my mind. I just try to describe it with the words. And uh, that's kind of how I go about it. They just sort of show up on their own. You know, I, I don't, uh, it's hard to describe. I, I, I don't know how that happens. They just seem to have a life of their own. And I just try to open the door and let them come through. How about thinking of Big Joe? Well, uh, Big Joe Williams, he, he was quite a character. He played a nine-string guitar. And he uh, I met him when I first got to Chicago. And then uh, later on, uh, when I went to work for that record store, he and I roomed together in the basement of that store. Then I got in a fight with the guy that owned the store, and I moved <laughs> to another record store. It had a hallway with rooms behind the store, and uh, and Joe didn't like that guy either. <laughs> so when I moved, Joe backed up, moved over there where I was. So we roomed together and spent a lot of time together. He told me lots of stories about, and he knew all those guys. He knew Robert Johnson. He knew Charlie Patton. He knew a lot of blues singers that never recorded that he talked about. Um, he knew all their tunes. Joe couldn't read or write. He couldn't even write his own name. But you could name a highway. He'll tell you where it begins and where it ends and every town on it. I love it. Name a railroad. He'll tell you where it runs. Uh, he can drive all over the country without a map. I mean, that guy was, he was something else. And so I learned a lot from Joe just hanging out with him. And we would sit around playing, too, all night. We drink beer and just play till the wee hours of the morning. So uh, he was a big influence on me. He was also the guy that wrote "Baby, Please Don't Go," which is like a a classic blues song that just about everybody's heard. And uh, he died, and uh, a mutual friend of ours inherited one of Joe's guitars. And this friend of ours, his name was Bluett Thomas, and he was from uh, Crawford, Mississippi. He couldn't play a nine string, so he converted it back to a six string guitar. 
And he happened to pass through Clarksdale here and he came by with that guitar. It was Joe's old guitar. And uh, we took it over to the studio and I just started playing it. I just made up something on the spot there. It wasn't something uh, composed. It was just a spontaneous tune. I couldn't play it again to save my life. <laughs> I played it that one time when we recorded it and that was it. So uh, I was just playing it and thinking about Big Joe. And that's how it was organic. <laughs> Well, you've been you've been known to call your music secular spiritual music. What does that mean? Well, like when I say it's all-purpose music, and it's it'll go with you through life. It'll help you. It's more than just music. It has more substance to it than a lot of music. It's not just surface. And uh, in that point of view, it's it's more about life, which could be spiritual in a way. It's your, it's your comforter when you're down and your buddy when you're up. It's always there for you. It's, it's it helps you. And uh, a lot, I know a lot of gospel singers, especially the Blind Boys of Alabama, which I, I have two tours coming up with them. They're old friends of mine, and they wouldn't want you to know that they actually do like blues. <laughs> <laughs> the blues in the church. Don't get along, you know. Yeah, they'll say, Lord, don't allow no blues. <laughs> but uh, I know a lot of gospel guys that are way into blues, and uh, they don't see any difference, actually. It's just in one song you're singing about my baby, and the other one you're singing about Jesus. Uh, it's got the same feel often. So uh, secular blues... Uh, secular, however you want to put it, it's it's more than just uh, more. It's not a fad. It's more than just music. It's got a lot of heart, soul in it. So you mentioned that you're back in Clark still. We'll sort of wrap this up. But does you're born in Mississippi and now you're back in Mississippi? You've been all around the world. You still travel, obviously extensively. Does it feel like you're coming full circle to be back in Mississippi? back in Clarksdale, where you, where you kind of, every, all this started? Yeah, I love it. It just makes sense. I love living in the Delta. Clarksdale is a great town. Uh, when I was a kid, I was here uh, often. I had three uncles that lived here. And I saw how it was just a booming town back then. On a Saturday, you couldn't hardly walk down the street here. Uh, and then I saw it almost become like a ghost town, and now it's coming back. People are moving from all over the place. For some reason, a lot of Australians have moved here. But uh, people from all over the world are, visit here. You see them all the time, walking around with their cameras and taking pictures. And, uh, and they're from everywhere. Italy and Scandinavia, Australia, Japan, from Asia. And they're fascinated to see this town where so much blues came from. And uh, you can feel, I tell people, you can feel the blues here. You can just feel it in the air. It's like tangible. You can just grab a handful out of the air and put it in your pocket and take it home with you. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of blues. There's more blues here, actually, than I've, I've noticed in Memphis. When you go down Beale Street, I hear more rock and roll than I hear blues. Uh, so this is Blue Central. You got the Blue Delta Blues Museum. I can see it from my window over here. There's not many blues museums, and this is the, one of the best in the world. It's a beautiful museum. A lot of people don't know about it. They should come see that museum. And you got a lot of blues clubs. Uh, Red's Lounge is just down the street. I can walk there in about three minutes. It's an old-style juke joint. And there's a lot of clubs around, a lot of great restaurants. You can get home cooking or you can get Lebanese cooking. or uh, you get One of the best hamburgers I ever had in my life is right over here. <laughs> so it's, it's like, and a lot of characters. Just You don't need a plan. Just walk out out the door and you'll run into one character after another all day and have big belly laughs and 
at the end of the day, you know, you had a great day. And you can understand why a guy like Tennessee Williams to write all those plays based on the people that live here. It's like being inside a Tennessee Williams play, just living here. Just wonderful. Well, I'm a big fan of fried pickles. So um, if you, you come across everything. the best fried pickle, then <laughs> let me know where it is because you get I'm fried coming. everything here. <laughs> uh, they make a great BLT with the, instead of just the regular tomatoes, they put fried green tomatoes on the BLT. Boy, that's something else. I was going to say, that's my kind of sandwich. I'm, I'm oh, coming yeah. to visit you. And then hopefully, Charlie, you can come to see us in Memphis. We're right up the road. But it's really been a pleasure talking to you about Mississippi Sun, your, the album. We wish you the best with your tour. And uh, really, thank you so much for your time. All right, folks. We hope you enjoyed hearing from blues music legend Charlie Musselwhite, a truly magnetic figure in music. With Mississippi Sun, his latest album release, Muscle White has come full circle, returning home to Mississippi after decades in Memphis, Chicago, San Francisco, and points in between. Throughout his decades of worldwide touring, Muscle White has used the blues to tell his truth, and man, are we here for it. Learn more by visiting charliemusclewhite.com. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today, and we hope to see you again real soon, right here on Insights. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.